still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every Somebody as well said that the church is the only organization on earth that exists for the sake of those who aren't a part of it yet. And there's a lot of truth in that, isn't it? The point of it is that the church really isn't just about us. It's about all of those that we, that we desperately want to come to know our Lord. The church isn't just about us. The church is not Costco. It's not Sam's Club where you got to have a card just to get inside the door. We're not that way. We are, we are proponents of Jesus who said, look, whosoever will may come. That certainly is what we believe, and that is exactly what we are about as we try to plug individuals into that power source of God. But the fact of the matter is that reaching out is a challenging matter in 2022 because so many individuals in our world view the church and religion in general with a great deal of suspicion. And so how do we share the gospel? That can be very intimidating. I mean, uh, sometimes we have a captive audience, so... You know, how would we share the gospel with 50,000 people gathered together in Raymond James Stadium to watch a Bucks game? Or 15,000 people here on the campus to watch a Gators basketball game? Or just going to the Florida State Fair and thousands of individuals who are milling around there? Or let's bring it down even closer with a, with a neighbor by whom we live or a coworker, somebody with whom we go to school. How do we build bridges with these people? How do we find some common ground with these individuals? Well, that brings us to Acts chapter 17. Now, you're wonderful Bible students, and so you know that in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to the city of Athens. There he would see, for example, the the Parthenon. That's probably, that's what it looks like today if you were to visit. If you had gone in Paul's day, it would have looked something like that. It was a beautiful structure, admired throughout the world, one of the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Athens was an impressive city. Some 250,000 souls lived there. It was the center of philosophy and arts. It was the cradle of democracy. It was known for athletics because the Olympics had their genesis there. And it's in that city where Paul comes. And we're going to have the encounters that we're going to look at today out of Acts chapter 17. Now, you know that in the story in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is invited to the Areopagus. Areopagus is an interesting word. It it has to do both with a place and the people who met at that place. And so they took Paul and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. And so that would be both the place and the people who met there. Now, the place in Paul's day would have been very impressive. It stood at the very base of the Pantheon. And as you can see from the rounded portion to the right of the screen there, that would have been the area known as the Areophagus. The people who met there were known as the Areophagus as well. It was was a gathering place of people who were prominent. These were influential people, important people who would discuss the philosophical issues of the day or the political issues of the day or the current affairs of the day. And they would also discuss religion. 
And you've heard it said in Bible classes and sermons that for Paul to be invited to speak there would have been an honor. I mean, think, for example, about being invited to address a joint session of Congress or maybe making your maiden speech to Parliament in England. And so this is the kind of setting to which Paul is invited. And it's fascinating that in this account, Paul shows us ways to find common ground and connecting points with individuals that we might think that we have absolutely nothing in common with. And we use that terminology sometimes, don't we? We'll say about somebody, you know what? I just don't have anything in common with them. I love the Lord. They don't care about the Lord. I, I love my church family. They, they, don't, they don't care about church at all. I, I love the Bible. They, they don't care about the Bible. We just, we just don't have anything in common at all. But of course we really do, don't we? I mean, we, we have at least two things in common. One is that we all have the same fundamental problem, and that is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we all share the same solution to that problem. Acts 4 and verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. So at the very least, we share a common problem and we share a common solution to that problem. But when Paul came to Athens with these individuals that you would just think, they, they just don't have anything in common at all. He, he shows us, I think, in Acts chapter 17, four ways to find common ground. And they were true in the first century, and they're true in the 21st century as well. So I want to share them with you very quickly in these minutes that we have, and then this lesson will be yours. Here we go. Number one. Number one, Paul opened his eyes. It begins by opening your eyes. And I just want you to notice the text here. He said, as I walked around and looked. And so as he walked around, he opened his eyes and he looked at the city and the culture in which he found himself. And it goes on even beyond that. <clears throat> he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and Gentiles, uh, or Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. And so he, he goes where the people are, and he just notices what is going on. He goes to the synagogue with Jews, and he goes to the marketplace, the Agora, with Gentiles. And the point of that is that he doesn't just associate with Christians. He goes in the community where he finds himself, and he opens his eyes to see. That's an important consideration. I think sometimes we believe, you know what, if we just didn't have, to, if, if we could just deal only with Christians, that would be ideal. If we could just wake up in a gated Christian community and get in our car and go to a job where only Christians worked and then in the afternoon stop at a Publix where you did have to show the card to get in, that you were a card-carrying Christian and only Christians could shop there and then you go home to your gated Christian community, that would be great. And Jesus said, no, that, that wouldn't be great at all. You, you've got to shine like lights in the world. And Paul said, Philippians 2 and 13, yes, it is a crooked and perverse generation, but again, in that crooked and perverse generation, you, you've got to shine like lights in the world. And so we have to go into all the world. I've always loved this statement out of the Chronicles that from Issachar, there were men who understood the times. And that's what Paul does. He opens his eyes so that he can see. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to find ways to take Jesus into, into our world. We've got to pay attention to the culture in which we live and the lives of those around whom we live. We've got to look for signs of some spiritual curiosity. Paul did that. Do you have your Bible? Look at Acts 17 with me and look with me at verse number 
22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now you may have a translation this morning that doesn't say religious. You may have a translation that uses the word superstitious. In all things you're very superstitious, which tells you that the translators had a little difficulty trying to figure out which word to use there. I think it's because that the reality is that what was religion to the Athenians was superstitious, superstition to Paul. And so what they counted religion, Paul looked at and said that's superstitious. But what's interesting to me about that is that Paul doesn't begin by insulting them in that or offending them in that. He doesn't say, you know what, you, you all, it, just in ignorance, your religion is superstitious and you, you, you don't know any better. He doesn't begin by offending them about that at all. He tries to build a bridge. He's thankful that they have some religious inclinations that they're trying to meet and uses that. We need to be careful that we don't offend people before we ever begin, before we ever start. I uh, <clears throat> was thinking about that uh, about four or five years ago, for some reason, my wife of 45 years, who had never watched a football game in her life, about five years ago got interested in professional football. She started watching football with me. And it wasn't because she liked the Tampa Bay Bucks. She liked the New Orleans Saints. And she liked the New Orleans Saints only because of Drew Brees. Just, just Drew Brees. That was it. And so last January, when the Bucks were about to play the Saints, they were interviewing Drew Brees, who she's fascinated with. And we're watching that interview. And in the midst of that interview, my wife, Vicki, looks at me and she says, that is one beautiful man. <laughs> and and I, I looked at her, I said, Vicki, I, I can hear the words coming out of your mouth. And she looked at me and said, oh, I know. <laughs> like, and, now, I could have taken offense at that, but I was just very thankful that she was watching football with me. You know, Paul could have taken offense at the offense. He could have said, look, your religion, you, in your ignorance, you're just you're superstitious, but he doesn't do that. He uses that as springboard to say, could I tell you about the God that you just, that you really don't know, but a God that you desperately need to know? And he uses that to build a bridge. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that when we pay attention to our world and those in our world, when we find, we'll find, we, we have bridges that we, can, that, build, that we can build and cross. It's easy once we begin thinking in those terms. You know, our challenge is that we often don't think in those terms. We've got, to, we've got to do that. We've got to find those ways to build bridges of commonality. We can do it if we just think about it. Where I live in Temple Terrace, <clears throat> in, uh, there's a Starbucks about two minutes from my house. It opened in uh, July of 1999. I remember that because I was driving by, and as they were putting up the sign, when I saw that, I pulled off to the side of the road and offered a prayer of thanksgiving because I, re I, re I really like Starbucks a lot. That Starbucks, like all the others, they've gone through a thousand managers in there, some good, some bad, but they had one that was outstanding. Her name was Wendy, and Wendy was a great manager. She came from Chicago. She was named after the Windy City, Chicago, and we had a lot in common because my last two years of high school, I went just outside the city of Chicago, and so we talked a lot about that. She liked to work on Sunday morning because nobody was there early in the morning. And I would go in there every Sunday morning of the world on my way to the building. I'd go in early, about 6.45, 7 o'clock. And one Sunday morning, just Wendy and me in there, and I, I said, listen, Wendy, 
I come and see you all the time where you work. When are you going to come see me where I work? And she said, oh, no, Don. She said, if I were to come into a church building, the place would just collapse. And I said, well, Wendy, we got, we got a pretty strong building. I said, I think it could handle even you. And she said, no, I don't think so, Don. And I said, okay. So I didn't say anything for a couple of weeks. But two or three weeks later, <clears throat> in there again, and nobody's around. And so I said, listen, Wendy, I'm, I'm serious now. I come and see you all the time where you work. When are you going to come see me? where I work. And she said, well, I'll think about it. Well, lo and behold, two Sunday mornings later, in between Bible class and worship, I look in the back of our building, and there's Wendy standing against the back wall of our building. And I went up to her, and I said, Wendy, man, I am so glad you were here. She said, Don, I, I know so many people here. <laughs> and I said, yeah, man, we're all addicted to caffeine in this room. I said, come, come down and sit with Vicky and me. And she did. And I asked her before she left that day, I said, Wendy, would you, would you study the Bible with me? And she said, yeah, I would do that. And Wendy had a lot to overcome. I mean, she had lived a pretty rough life at that point in her life. She was living with somebody to whom she was not married. But man, we began to study the Bible, and it, it began to go together for her. And lo and behold, about six weeks later, on a Sunday morning, I offered the invitation, and here comes Wendy down the aisle. She says, I want to be baptized. I baptized her that day. And 18 months later, I performed her wedding ceremony to a fine young Christian man. And it all began because I found a non-obtrusive way to build a bridge. Wendy, I come and see you all the time where you work. I want you to come see me where I work. You see, we all can do that. We've just got to start thinking in those terms about ways that we can build those bridges that are natural, that are organic, and they make such an impact on other individuals. Paul opened his eyes. We've got to do the same, ladies and gentlemen. Secondly, he exposed his heart. <clears throat> he exposed his heart. Did you notice in verse 16, read this with me. While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. But provoked really isn't the best word. It is he was greatly distressed. What he saw distressed him greatly. Distress is an interesting word. It means to, to needle or to poke or to jab. It's the word that's used in Hebrews 10 and 24 that we ought, to, we ought to provoke one another into love and good works. We ought to motivate, poke, jab, it says. But the point of it here at Acts 17 is that what Paul saw in Athens caused him pain. It made his heart ache because he saw religious people seemingly searching for God and yet they were headed in the wrong direction in their life and it broke his heart. He saw people debating philosophy and building temples and erecting statues and yet their religion was empty and they didn't know it and it caused him pain. The question is, ladies and gentlemen, does it cause us any pain? You know, part of our challenge, part of our challenge, part of our challenge is that we live in an all-inclusive, everybody gets a trophy, everybody gets a snow cone kind of world. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. God loves us anyway, and it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget that that neighbor who is so kind and the coworker that is so helpful and the fellow student who is so brilliant and the family member that is so loved, it's easy to forget that if they've never been obedient to Jesus Christ, they are, what's the Bible word? Lost. And it's easy for it not to break our heart and cause us pain. 
We've got to care. Remember that old cliche, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care? You know how something gets to be a cliche? It's got an element of truth in it, and it gets repeated. And people do need to know that we care. The danger is that we might become apathetic. Ah, it's so easy to become desensitized to so much, isn't it? We do that just in our world, in our culture. Another political scandal, and another mass shooting. You realize there was, a, there was a shooting at a school last week, and it got about 15 seconds of, of attention in the media. Why? Because we've gotten so used to it. And if we're not careful, ladies and gentlemen, we can be that way in our view of the world and not realize it not cause us any pain that these individuals are actually lost. There's a statement in verse 21 of Acts 17 that's interesting. All the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. I realize that that verse is spoken in a negative light, no denying that. But I tell you, there's a side of that verse that I really do like. And what I really like about that verse is that the Athenians at least were willing to think about something new. There's something to be said for that. Because I'll guarantee you that you know just like I know. I know some people and you know some people that years ago, years ago, they closed the lid on their box of knowledge and they taped it shut and they wouldn't let a fresh idea flow through there for anything in the world. Now I realize, I realize that, that the purpose of an open mind is eventually to close on something. I, I understand that. But at least these individuals were willing to think about that. Now, it is spoken here in a negative light, and there's no denying that, and I don't want to minimize that. But the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, that these individuals were willing to listen. And so Paul, as he looked, as he saw, he opened his heart. He hurt for them. He hurt for them deeply because of what he saw. I'm going to move on from a couple of things here that may be on your sheet, but let's just move on to them. Third, he he engaged his mind. And let's just think about the, the logical, orderly, sequential kind of events here. He opened his eyes, and what he saw caused him pain. But that's never going to be enough. And so third, he he engaged his mind with these people. It wasn't just that he, he cared about what he saw, but now he's got to try to do something about that. So what's he going to do? Well, he's going to engage his mind. Now, the Bible word for that in Acts chapter 17 is the word reasoning. And so take a look at the screen here with me for just a minute. We see this all over this passage. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And so he reasoned with them. And as his custom was, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scripture. And in Acts 18 and beginning of verse 4, Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so he opened his mind. He engaged his mind. He reasoned with them. The point of that is, ladies and gentlemen, that preaching and teaching ultimately is designed to try to persuade people, reason with people, to present a logical case for faith so that people can have faith based on something very credible. Years ago, I've been at Temple Terrace now for 28 years. 
I don't ever say that out loud there. I don't want them to realize that. But, but I've been there for 28 years. For years after I moved there, every Monday night, I taught a high school class. And we would have teenagers from all over Tampa Bay come to this class. And I did this for years. And one of the books that I used that I really liked one year, I used a book one year in that study called Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. It's by uh, Josh McDowell. It's a little book on evidence that's geared toward teenagers. And what I really liked more than the content of the book was the title. Don't check your brains at the door. And I would tell young people, you know why you don't need to do that? Because you don't need to. You don't need to check your brains at the door. There's no need. The fact of the matter is that there are mounds of evidence to support our faith. That's what Paul's doing. He is reasoning with these individuals. But somebody says, well, but Don, what if you meet somebody? What if you meet somebody, Don, that is extremely sharp, they're intellectual, but they've drawn a different conclusion. They have a different idea about faith than you. Well, you know what? The Apostle Paul met people just like that in Acts chapter 17. And so in Acts chapter 17, there were a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who began to debate with him. <clears throat> well, those are two very interesting groups. Now, they are, they are polar opposites of each other, right? So on the one hand, you've got the Epicureans, the followers of Epicurus, who gave us the idea of eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And so they are hedonists. That was a very popular philosophy in the first century. It is a very popular philosophy in the 21st century. At the other end of the spectrum are the Stoics. And the Stoics are individuals who, as the name suggests, they believe that you should not allow external circumstances to upset your internal emotional equilibrium. And so they would have made great Brits, stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on. That was them. And so they're at polar, polar opposites. But Paul is going to debate with them. He's going to reason with them. There are a lot of folks in 2022 who are trying to navigate the world, particularly as we have hopefully are coming out of this pandemic, who are trying to navigate the world through one of those philosophies, one of those worldviews. And Paul would just say, you know, both of them lead to dead ends. Now, their view of Paul is that he is a babbler. And so they're saying to themselves, what is this babbler trying to say? Babbler. Well, that's an interesting word. See, to us, a babbler is someone who babbles, right? Somebody just talks incessantly, maybe not saying really anything, but they just, they just kind of go on and on and on. That's not what the word here means. You may have a marginal note in your Bible that uses the phrase seed picker. What is this seed picker trying to say? Well, that's an interesting thought. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> in the first century, it referred to a bird that scavengered for food, and so it would pick a little bit here, and then go over here and pick a little bit here and here and here. But it was also used for religious teachers who would forge their own faith. And so they would take something over here and something over here, something over here, and the amalgamation would be what composed their faith. That's what a lot of folks do today. I mean, let's be real honest. There are a lot of folks today who, who they may never say this out loud, but in their mind, you know, their reason is, you know what? I will take, I'll take all the Beatitudes, I'll take all the fruit of the Spirit, I'll take eight of the Ten Commandments, uh, I will take once saved, always saved from Calvinism, and I'll take, uh, let's say, baptism for the dead from Mormonism, just in case. And you put that all together, and that's my faith. That was the word babbler in the first century. And so they say, we, we'd kind of like to know what this, this guy has in mind. And boy, Paul gets to the heart of that really quickly because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
And so Paul gets them from point A to point B and says, look, I'm not going to seed pick it at all. What I want to talk to you about is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he says that's the bottom line. Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. Paul no doubt said things like he would say to the Corinthians. You know, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once as if inviting investigation and scrutiny. I mean, let's, let's be clear, ladies and gentlemen, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christian faith. I've said many, many times in many places, you could have Christianity without a lot of things. You could have Christianity without Jesus walking on water. You could have Christianity without Jesus turning water to wine. You could have Christianity without Jesus doing a ton of different things that he did, but you cannot have Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so that's where Paul begins. And he would say to the Corinthians, I... I received and I passed on to you that which is of first importance, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And somebody says today, oh, but Don, you know what? There are a lot of things in the Bible I don't understand. There are a lot of things in the Bible hard to understand. Well, you're right about that. I mean, Peter told the truth. Our brother Paul has written many things hard to be understood. But you know what? I can't understand. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Oh, but Don, you know, there are people in the church who aren't what they ought to be. There, there are some people in the church that are hypocritical. There are people in the church who sometimes are alienated from each other by politics or by race or by other kinds of things. Well, you know what? That should not be. But I tell you, in spite of all of that, what I do know is Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that is the ultimate reasonableness of our faith. And so, ladies and gentlemen, if we don't get people anywhere else, let's get them to that from point A to point B. A Christian faith centers in a risen Lord. And so he engaged his mind. And then fourth, as he reasoned with them, he connected them with God. God whom you worship without knowing it is this God that I want to declare to you. And he says, let me tell you about this God. He says, this God created you. Verse number 24, you are the handiwork of this God. He created you. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. And he's very close to us. Even your poets, own poets have said that. He is not far from, from any one of us. And this God will hold us accountable. And that's important to understand. This God will hold us accountable. Do you have your Bible, Acts 17? Look with me, beginning in verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art or man's devising. Can you imagine, ladies and gentlemen, the courage, the sheer courage that it took to say that when you were standing in the shadow of the pantheon? And his conclusion in verse 30 is this. Truly, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. That was not a popular statement then. It's not a popular statement now, but it's a true statement. God calls us to repent. You know, I wish, I wish we could have heard the inflection in Paul's voice when he said that. Because the way we usually quote that is like it's a threat. God commands everyone now to repent. And maybe that's the way Paul said it. Maybe that's the way he said it. I don't know. But it could be that he also said, you know what? Now, God commands everybody to repent because you know why? He's given you a second chance. He wants you to turn your life around and go in a better direction. And because of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, you can do that. 
at Temple Terrace where I preach, <clears throat> we, often, we often call our, ourselves the U-turn church, the U-turn church, because if you've ever been to our building, you got to make a U-turn. I mean, if you, if you come our building in one direction and go in, when you leave and you're going to go back the same way, you got to make a U-turn. And that's true either way you go. So, I mean, when you come to our building, you got to make a U-turn. And so we, we call ourselves sometimes the U-turn church because that's what we want to offer to men. God's saying, you can make a U-turn in your life. You can repent. You can do better. And that's what Paul's saying. Look, you, you all, you, I see this inclination in you. You can go in a better direction than you've been in the past. If you want to, that's your choice. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he's ordained, and he gave assurance to all in that he raised him from the dead, and he brings him right back again to the linchpin of Christian faith, and that's the resurrection. All right, I've got four minutes left, <clears throat> so I'm going to give you four things. I'm going to give you four things that everybody can do in evangelism. I think evangelism scares us. The word scares us. Here's a great, great. I mean, when, it, when, when Mark said this morning, Don's going to talk to us about evangelism. I know what some of you were thinking. Great. Just what we need. Another preacher to make us feel guilty because we're not doing enough in evangelism and in personal evangelism. No, that's not. I'm not into drive-by guiltings. I just don't do that. But I want to tell you four things that you can do in evangelism. And it doesn't matter if you're eight years old or 80 years old. It doesn't matter if you didn't finish high school or if you have a PhD. It doesn't matter. There are four things that every person in this room can do in evangelism. Let me share these with you quickly before we stop this morning. Here they are. Number one, everybody can shine. Everybody can shine. That's what Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and thereby glorify your Father in heaven. You can live a godly, influential Christian life. You can do that. Everybody can do that. Everybody can shine. Secondly, everybody can speak. Everybody can speak. Now, everybody was nodding their head when I said shine. Nobody's nodding their head now. Everybody stopped. Why? Oh, Don, I... I can't speak. I, I can't preach. You don't need to. I don't want all of you to. I'll be out of a job if you could do that. So don't do that. Don, I can't teach a Bible class. Well, that's okay. Not everybody has the ability to do that. That's not what I'm talking about. Everybody can speak. Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father in heaven. He wasn't talking about the confession before baptism. You get that in Romans 10. He's just talking about owning God in your life. He's talking about what I did with Wendy. He's talking about just learning to build bridges and find common ground with individuals. We can all do that, ladies and gentlemen. We'll just think about it. I just want to encourage you to do that. To think about ways to build those bridges. <clears throat> I'll, I'll tell you just a real quick example of that. In our church family at Temple Terrace, we have a couple, Mark and Valinda Kornheiser. They're a wonderful couple. Mark runs the best dry cleaner in Temple Terrace. I've gone to his business since the first week that I moved to Temple Terrace. Now, it was owned at that time by his dad. And his dad was kind of a crusty old guy, kind of a grumpy old guy. But when he passed away, Mark took over the business. And Mark is the polar opposite of his dad. He is a happy soul. He loves everybody. And everybody loves him. His customers love him. I went in one day, and something was clearly wrong. I just, I opened my eyes, and something was wrong. And I said, Mark, what? What's bothering you today? And he said, oh, Don, he said, it's, it's my wife. He said, she's been diagnosed with breast cancer. And he said, it's really bad, Don. It's serious. 
And I said, well, Mark, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for your wife. What's her name? And he said, well, her name's Valinda. I said, well, I'm going to pray for her. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to our members that I know use your business here. And I'm going to ask them to pray for Valinda as well. And I'd go in from time to time and ask. I'd get an update about how she was doing. And finally, I went in one day and I said, Mark, how's Valinda? And he said, oh, Don. He said, you're not, you're not going to believe this. He said, she got a clean bill of health last week. They told her that she is cancer-free. And I said, oh, Mark, thank God for that. I said, I'm so pleased. I said, we, we've been praying for her. The next Sunday, the next Sunday morning, I walk out of my Bible class. I'm walking through the foyer, and there's a little lady standing there. And she's, she's just a tiny, diminutive little lady. And I, I didn't recognize her. I went over. I stuck out my hand, and I said, hey, good morning. It's good to have you. I'm Don Truex. And she said, I'm Valinda. I said, are you? Are you Mark's Valinda? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, Valinda, we've been praying for you. She said, I know you have. And about that time, there was an older couple that was walking by. They're extraordinarily evangelistic. And so I introduced them. I introduced them to Jerry and Kathy. And Jerry and Kathy, boy, I, I tell you what, they took, them, took Valinda. They took her, sat down with her. They began to study the Bible with her, began to study with her. First, they just studied the building. And then <clears throat> she wanted to study at their home, at her home. And so they studied there. And Jerry was telling me, look, we're studying with Valinda. Mark, he, he's not coming in, but he said, I, we can tell he's listening in the next room. Mark was Jewish. Everybody in his family's Jewish. Everybody in his family for as many generations as he's known anything is Jewish. But he said, I know he's listening in the other room. And eventually Mark in the other room began to send questions for Valinda to ask or he could listen in the other room. And then one day I looked up and Mark was sitting by Valinda in our assembly. And eventually Mark was baptized. Valinda was baptized. And they're faithful Christians today. And it happened just because you just have to open your eyes, see that something's going on in somebody's life, find a way to say, we're going to pray for you. We're going to do whatever we can for you. Because again, what was that cliche? People don't care how much you know until what? They know how much you care. We can all do that, ladies and gentlemen. And then we can invite. The easiest thing you'll ever do in evangelism is just invite people to come to worship. Because after all, what's the worst thing that could happen? They might say, no, well, we can handle that. And then <clears throat> when they accept that, we've got to open our eyes and welcome those who come and visit in our assembly. Shine, speak, invite, welcome. Shine, speak, invite, welcome. You can do that. Everybody can do those four things. I hope we'll all find ways to build those bridges, make a difference in our world. Thank you all for listening so well this morning. The Lord is in his holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in North Central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, Check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence before